You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Gentlemen, welcome to ODI this afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we have a really terrific group of people, uh, both on the panel and in the audience. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to have you all here today for what I think is going to be an engaging and important conversation. Uh, we convened this event with the headline question, do we need a new approach to support fragile states? Um, and uh, I think, uh, spoiler alert, I think you're going to hear a lot of yes to that. Um, so probably the more important question is how do we need to change than whether we need to change. Um, and we really have a pretty remarkable group of five people um, who can answer uh, that question for us today. Um, I will introduce them in a minute. I want to start by saying my name is Alex Thier. I'm the executive director here. Um, in 2015, the world came together and committed to a series of goals, the Sustainable Development Goals, following up from the Millennium Development Goals. And these goals committed to some pretty remarkable things. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, they committed to the end of extreme poverty around the world after the incredible progress uh, that we had seen in the intervening years uh, since the Millennium Development Goals were established. Um, and then, of course, with the Paris Conference and other things um, committed to saving the planet uh, and uh, peace and security um, and many of the things that we all know are critical uh, to everybody being able to enjoy a life of basic human dignity. Um, what we also have learned, and we probably knew at the time, but has become ever more apparent, uh, is that our ability to accomplish any of these goals is largely going to depend on our ability to succeed in fragile states. Uh, there's an estimate that uh, I've seen between 60% and two-thirds of all of the extreme poor will be concentrated in fragile states by 2030. Um, and many of the other concerns uh, that we have, um, uh, whether it's about access to health and education, pandemic outbreaks, uh, violent extremism, uh, the plight of the displaced, both internally and externally. Many of these issues center on our ability to do something meaningful uh, and to improve uh, the lot of so many people who find themselves living today in fragile states. Now, at the same time, there is a lot of thinking and talking going on. Uh, this year, the World Bank and the IMF um, put uh, a pivot to fragile states at the top of the agenda. Uh, during their annual meetings. Uh, there is a new uh, commission report out um, from LSE and Oxford, uh, chaired by David Cameron, uh, uh, that is looking at how to improve on fragile states. Um, ODI has been doing a lot of work on this, um, and one of the reasons uh, that you are all here today, the IMF uh, Independent Evaluation Office has come out with a very interesting report on what the IMF can and should be doing. So it is clearly a moment of a lot of people paying attention to what is a critical issue. Um, at the same time, many of the things that you will find in this colorful array of reports that you can find outside as well um, is that these are not new problems. We've known about many of these problems for years. And so the question is, what is different now? What are we going to do now with the resources, with the institutions, with the actors that is actually going to be able uh, to make a difference. 
with us today, um, we're honored to be joined by uh, first Charles Collins, the director of the Independent Evaluation Office at the IMF, uh, David Carew, who's joining us from Sierra Leone. He's the former Minister of Finance there. Rachel Glenister, the relatively new uh, chief economist um, at DFID, we're very excited to have here. Um, Catherine Nawajiaku, close, I'm trying to pronounce that, not so good, <laughs> um, uh, who um, is joining us from Paris, uh, where she is responsible for uh, the International Dialogue on Peace Building and State Building Secretariat there. Uh, and finally, our very own Marcus Manuel, a senior research associate here at ODI, who's been focusing on these issues uh, for many years. Uh, I also want to welcome again everybody in the audience. We also have quite a number of people, I understand, uh, watching online. Um, so uh, if you see me, I am not looking at my iPhone during this. Uh, uh, this is how we're getting questions um, from those of you who are participating uh, either here or around the world. Uh, we want to encourage you to silence your iPhones or whatever device you have, but to actively participate in the conversation. You can do that in a couple of ways. Uh, you can uh, tweet, uh, and I think the hashtag uh, is up there, hashtag fragile states. Um, we are at ODI Dev, um, and if you are online, you can click and actually send a question, and I'll try to pick some of those up um, as we go uh, during the conversation. Uh, so without further ado, um, I would actually like to turn to Catherine first. Um, she has been uh, at the center um, of the community that has been focusing on the New Deal for Fragile States, which emerged out of the 2011 Busan Conference on Development Effectiveness. This has been a critical agreement and a community that has kept alive and tried to deepen many of the principles um, that were embedded in that uh, document um, uh, and uh, is overseeing how it's going. Uh, and so uh, Catherine, as with all of our panelists, is going to have initially five minutes uh, to share with us some of her reflections on how the New Deal has been going and where we should be going from here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm very delighted to be here. And I thank you all for, for your presence here. So let me say a few words then. Uh, I won't go into too much detail about the New Deal itself, because I'm sure um, it's, I hope it's uh, well known by now. But when I look at this title, do we need a new approach to support fragile states? have some doubts about the extent to which it's really known that well. Because what, what I'm finding increasingly in the, in the array of reports uh, uh, that um, Alex just uh, cited, as well as the, uh, the independent evaluation, is that much of what the New Deal has been advocating for the last almost 10 years, okay, it was endorsed in Busan in 2011, but the group that came together in 2008 uh, to draft an action plan, which then became the New Deal, um, is some 10 years old. So the fact that we're here and we're asking this question would suggest that um, there's still a lot to be done. So what was the New Deal trying to do? The New Deal essentially, it came at that aid effectiveness moment and was an attempt by countries affected by conflict and fragility to say, we want some of that too here, thank you very much. Um, and so it was a kind of a deal struck uh, between donors, civil society as well, but the governments of some 20, what em emerged eventually as 20 countries affected by conflict and fragility, to craft an agreement about uh, what, what 
amounted to better practice in those countries. Um, and, and much of the effectiveness um, agenda essentially around using country systems, country ownership and leadership, capacity building to enable that, but prioritizing along, on the, along the lines of government's own priorities with peace building and state building at the forefront was essentially what it was about. So what have we learned? What, was, what has happened in those 10 years? Where we in the dialogue, the international dialogue, are, are, are also in deep reflection mode right now as to what all this has achieved. Um, we do see many other initiatives seeming to take on board much of the agenda on the horizon. And so we are asking ourselves, uh, so what is there left to do? Well, um, in 2015 um, and 2016, we did uh, two um, deep dives, deep thinks into to what has actually happened. One was the New Deal monitoring report, and another was an independent review of the New Deal and international dialogue, which uh, New York University uh, was commissioned uh, to, to undertake. And essentially, their conclusions were that, um, okay, uh, there has been some quite dramatic progress in some places. So Somalia is often cited as one country in which the New Deal was very much critical in, for, in informing the way donors and governments came together with a whole in architecture um, very much taking the New Deal to heart. Um, in other countries, in Sierra Leone, that we'll discuss later, in Liberia, in Timor-Leste, and in a number of other countries that were part of an initial eight-country pilot, there has clearly been an uptake in terms of some of the language of the New Deal, some of the ideals of mutual accountability, the development of a compact, and so on. However, um, the reports also concluded that much of the progress was bitty, much of the knowledge about the New Deal was very much located within particular parts of ministries of finance, there was very, a lot of difficulty in maintaining a political momentum around the agenda to which so many had committed. Some, up to, in, in 2016, I think we're talking about 55 countries and organizations. So we've had a kind of epileptic, uh, erratic uptake of the New Deal. We've also had lots of conversations in the international dialogue about, um, well, what do we mean when we say uh, countries have taken up the New Deal or not, and uh, maybe the New Deal has shaped ideas about practice, which it's quite difficult to document because it's not a package. So there's been a lot of debate about whether the New Deal has shaped practice in, in terms of everything in it, because it's quite detailed and quite complex, or bits of it have been influential. We hear there's a lot of discussion about how if Afghanistan, for example, which didn't have a New Deal um, explicit framework, but was the Tokyo uh, Mutual Accountability Framework very much shaped by much of what is in the New Deal. So we have a mixed bag. Having said that, and I'll come to my five minutes, I think I'm going on a bit. Um, having said that, I'll, I'll leave you with a few thoughts because um, there is a debate in the dialogue um, amongst uh, the, the donor part of the dialogue, essentially, um, about 
about what we take and what we leave from the New Deal. Do we need a New Deal 2.0? This discussion is quite resisted by the G7 plus countries who feel there is so much unfinished business that it would be too simple to say that, to draw a line and move on. And um, uh, what's clear is that certainly as I began my, 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 my presentation in saying, you know, there has certainly been an uptake of a lot of the New Deal language, and even in the SDG framework that you began with. Um, SDG 16 is clearly, much of it is reflecting this peace building and state building goals, which is one pillar of the New Deal. And then right throughout the, the, the SDG framework, we have a, 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 a concern to make building sustainable peace a cross-cutting objective. So we're, we're all, we seem to be in the same, uh, on the same uh, page, However, it's a question of the how that, is continues, that continues to be very divisive. And I'll just leave you with one last thought um, that's very close to the hearts of uh, G7 plus countries and this whole issue around what we mean by use of country systems, to what extent we're, it's still on the agenda. What we have learned in the dialogue is that although the, when we say use of country systems, for many it means budget support, that is very difficult. In some countries, particularly in Somalia, for example, there has, thanks to the New Deal, been a, a really interesting country-level discussion between governments and donors about the detail, about how we have to be nuanced about what we mean when we talk about use of country systems. So rather than presuming that the G7, all G7 plus countries are intrinsically wedded to budget support, it might be a long-term goal, but in Somalia, the conversation is about to what extent the government, given its institutional weaknesses, can have effective oversight, for example, um, of the, over the use of third parties. And, 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 and that in itself as an important milestone towards what would look like country systems. So I'll kind of leave it there. I'll probably come back to some of these issues afterwards. But um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll stop. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Catherine. Uh, Charles Collins was appointed the director of the Independent Office uh, Evaluation Office uh, by the Executive Board of the IMF in 2016. Uh, you've previously worked for the U.S. State Department, the Treasury, and the IMF, so a great uh, view across some critical institutions. Um, and you've now put out, I think, a very uh, incisive uh, critique or assessment of the IMF and what it could be doing better. Share. Uh, Thanks, Alex, and thanks to ODI for hosting this event. This is our report. You have copies outside. Uh, just very quickly go through the, the main findings. Uh, I think overall the fund has actually made an important difference in many uh, fragile states, uh, particularly as they emerge from, from conflict. The, I, the IMF is, is good at emergency management. It comes in quickly. It, it provides support. It helps to stabilize macroeconomies. Uh, it helps to, to rebuild uh, core macroeconomic institutions like central banks, like currencies, uh, like revenue systems that have, that have fallen apart uh, during periods of, of conflict uh, with its capacity development work. Uh, and it helps to catalyze uh, flows of, of external support. If the IMF gives a stamp of approval, donors pay attention uh, and provide substantial amounts of funding. Uh, so the, the fund has played a, a significant role as, you know, was, as we went through our case studies was, was widely recognized. 
On the other hand, uh, we think that the fund has fallen short of its, of its aspirations. I think there is a recognition uh, that helping fragile states is an, a, a, a priority global public good. Uh, the, the fund has signed on to that. Uh, but in practice, when we look at the fund's sustained work in fragile states, we think it falls short of that aspiration. That the, fund, the fund is conflicted. It, it believes in the aspiration, but on the other hand, it's also reluctant to move away from its standard business model of, of dealing with countries, which doesn't necessarily fit very well uh, to fragile states, uh, countries that have weak institutional capacity, uh, where there are governance issues that are subject to, to frequent shocks, political shocks, security shocks, commodity price shocks, uh, disease shocks. Uh, these are countries that find it very hard to sustain high-level policies that typically the fund will ask for in order to provide sustained financial support or capacity development support. Uh, so there's a problem. Um, when we say the fund's business model isn't well suited, we, we go through a whole series of, 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 of issues. Uh, one set of issues surrounds fund financial facilities. The fund doesn't, does not have a special dedicated facilities targeted at fragile states. Rather, fragile states have to fit within the typical uh, package of, of fund facilities. Uh, we think there's a gap uh, between the low conditionality, rapid financing, but small amounts uh, that fragile states can quite easily access, uh, and the, the larger amounts of sustained access require high-level uh, policy delivery, and that's, that fragile states find it difficult to do. Uh, second, we find a problem on capacity development. The fund has ramped up its work in providing capacity support for these countries. Uh, it's moved towards changing its business model to provide more on the ground uh, support, but but not enough. It's for these countries. It's not sufficient to just deliver a, a, a nice blueprint. You actually have to be there, have an office next to the ministry, uh, to actually help them as they uh, work through their through their problems. But this is this is expensive. It's not necessarily efficient. It's not necessarily value for money, uh, unless you take a long term view uh, of the uh, how capacity development delivers. Third problem. Uh, it's hard for, to attract the best IMF staff to work in fragile states. IMF staff come to work at the fund because they're interested in solving the problems of, uh, of India or China or Japan. Uh, they're not necessarily coming because they have a, a, a deep belief in contributing to development. So the fund is different from the World Bank or, or from, say, DFID, uh, where the staff is naturally interested in, in supporting fragile states. You need, the fund needs to support provide better incentives to recognize the work that's done on fragile states that, that it does. The fund is also very uh, risk averse in terms of sending people uh, to, to, to fragile states. Uh, this is a point that, that ODI has, uh, has, has raised on a number of occasions. Uh, there was, was a tragic uh, loss of, of the resident representative in Afghanistan a few years ago, and, and since then the fund has been extremely cautious. Uh, so it, it, it works with countries in high-risk locations, essentially off-site, uh, which is a reasonable response to high-risk situations. Uh, but I think the fund needs to be more flexible in looking for opportunities to re-engage uh, with countries uh, like Afghanistan, like, like Iraq, uh, like Somalia, where, where there are large risks on the ground. So there's a whole range of ways in which the fund's business model is not particularly well suited. 
in our report, we come up with a range of recommendations, recommendations to adjust uh, the, uh, the, uh, the toolkit of, of lending facilities, uh, uh, recommendations to strengthen uh, on-the-ground support for capacity development, recommendations to strengthen uh, the incentives for staff. But I think the most important recommendation relates to the, the need to provide high-level commitment uh, at fund management and board to working on these countries. Because as you said right at the start, Alex, th these problems have been known for a while. <laughs> uh, but to change things, uh, you actually need to bring in that consistent high-level support for actually doing things in a way that's suited uh, for the needs of these countries. And I, I think that's what's been lacking up to now, and that's what uh, we hope to get. Uh, there is going to be follow-up to the report. The uh, fund management and staff are committed uh, to producing an action plan uh, to respond to the, to the recommendations of the report uh, that were endorsed by the executive board. The board discussed the report in March. They broadly endorsed all our recommendations. So we're looking forward to see the action plan, which is due by September. Great. Well, we will all look forward to that. Uh, David, you have had the unique position of being a finance minister in a so-called fragile state at a critical time period uh, for your country and having experienced all of the institutions right around the table uh, plus uh, another uh, large group in addition to that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, and what you would ask, uh, not only of your own government, but of the international community and how uh, you can do better and not only in Sierra Leone, but more broadly. Right, okay, so this, um, this session here is a natural next step to um, what the report recommended. And um, in terms of collaboration, we see collaboration and coordination as a feedback to the donor community to unlock funds for the development of the country. But for a fragile state, it's not about donor funds. It's about creating the assurance for the business community to come in and invest so that the people would go together with the, um, with the company. <clears throat> so I will not focus on uh, what the donors would do. I'll focus on how they can help the country move to the next stage in its development. Because for me, that is what I would like to see when a country moves out of fragility. We do not want to stay in fragility forever. We need to be able to grow our own natural systems. We need to um, make sure that we take care of our people. <coughs> so in doing that, I would like to see more collaboration between the IMF, the donor, community, the CSOs in the countries, and the private sector. The private sector should not be left behind. I know that the donors, they have their own programs, they have their own budgets, which they have come with, and they have their own favorite topics or sectors that they would like to put their monies in. But there must be a way where we would all sit around the table and align our aspirations, our growth um, agenda with everybody that's sitting, that's interested to sit around the table with us. That is what I'm looking for. <clears throat> now, um, also, um, we need to see how the 
community, the donor community can help us not only in the social sector, the health and the education, but then there's a bigger need in infrastructure. We firmly believe that infrastructure develops a country quickly because it supports industrialization and industrialization would support employment, etc. And there would be more people moving out of poverty so that you do not come in and spend on our people, on education and um, health. Perhaps we would be in a position to do that for ourselves or we can get the people to do that for themselves. Now, um, so infrastructure is key, but this present situation now is that we do not get concessional loans, concessional funding for infrastructure development. We deal with commercial loans, and we are not able to handle the interest payment the, um, and the negotiation skills that would go with that kind of transaction. So what happens? There's a ready partner. We turn to China. China is quite willing to come in and say, we'll give you infrastructure if you give us whatever, resources, land, etc. That arrangement is not so bad. But if we are not in a position to engage them around the table and measure our resources with what they are giving us or the value of what they want from us, we would always be at the losing side. So we go to the next stage, which I would hope is capacity development. We need to build the capacity of our nationals, of the people, the politicians especially, who have been given the mandate to sit around and enter this negotiation and see how they can get a fair deal from our people. It is not fair if a, if a businessman has come up with a deal and he believes that he's done a good job, and when there's a change in regime, we go back to the table to say, Sorry, we don't want this kind of thing. It's not good for our people, etc. The business community wants some predictability, wants some stability in their business relationship. If they do not have that, if we cannot provide that, it reduces the quality of people who want to come in. So I see the IMF through collaboration, through coordination, extending its role, extending its capacity development um, agenda to help the country move forward. Now, in engaging with the um, donor community, I've added a few words to my vocabulary. One of them is regime change. That is fine, because at times in the country, we all want regime change. At times, we are fed up with the current government. They have outlived their usefulness. After the third year, they start getting into funny things. We want them, but I would hope that the donor community would not be so vocal. When you become vocal with that kind of agenda, you are conflicted, and you lose your credibility. And towards the end of an error, you start getting into fights with the, um, with the government. You really do not want that. <laughs> and lastly, yes, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm running out of time. I know that um, the other thing I've learned is the low-hanging fruits or quick wins. These are normal donor speak. 
and they would come in, they want to prove that they're effective, they would identify the easy targets and do it in parallel with the national institutions we have, just to prove their point. And when the, they compete with our national institutions, it undermines the capacity development that we expect from them. And because of time, I think I will just put it there. If I have another opportunity during the discourse, I, we can have more exchanges on that. You will definitely have that opportunity. Thank you, David. Uh, uh, Rachel Glenster was appointed chief economist in January. You started. Um, so getting into a government role after many other roles, uh, you were the director um, of the Poverty Action Lab at MIT, um, looking around the world at what works in development. And uh, you were also the lead academic for the International Growth Center for Sierra Leone. So some real in-depth country experience as well. Um, you've been working on these issues for a while from a lot of different perspectives. Are we, are we getting it right? Great. Thanks uh, for the opportunity to talk about this important um, question. I think I want to just echo the point that, you know, to start with, that macro stability is really important for these fragile countries and that, you know, the IMF has, can and has played an important role in providing a framework for you know bringing the donors together and for the government to kind of figure out what it should be doing um, to get to get the country back on track on it to solve its macro crisis um, but I mean I think this you know as we've been saying there's there's still a lot uh, you know we've we've been making these points and it differed we've been worried for a long time about the 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 fact that um, you know, we're not making as much progress as we would like, and uh, as differed, we've we've made a commitment to spend you know a large proportion of our own money in fragile states, and we've been pushing other international um, agencies to to focus on these countries because this is where poverty is going to be. Um, they are the threat to the international community, um, and if you know the fund is serious about being the organisation that worries about macro crisis, it needs to be very serious about working in, in fragile states. Um, and I think the concerns that this, this report raises have, you know, really resonate um, with us. Um, I think, in a sense, a lot of them boil down to this question of commitment and, you know, whether the fund sees it as a priority for itself. Um, and let me just focus on kind of conditionality as one um, you know, one example, if you're going to do conditionality right, you need to understand the local context very well. In particular, in a fragile state, you can't just, you know, take your conditions from any other place. You've got to understand, you know, because as we've heard, there's a lot of, uh, you know, limits to capacity. So you've got to think about what are the key things that you need that needs to change in this country to get to get stability and what particularly what are the things that you can change what are what's politically feasible to change right so when i've worked and given advice in countries uh, in my jpa role and other roles um you know the key thing in my mind is not just what you know where's the economics mucked up where's their market failures because those are everywhere right you've got to think about where is there a key constraint and there's actually political ability to move on that constraint. Um, and in order to understand that, you've got to be there. You know, so that's part of, 
part of what this report talks about is, you know, the fund has to be there and commit people who are going to be there long enough to really understand the issues on the ground, in particular to see what you're looking for in a condition is something that the government can move on, is willing to move on, and is important for getting things back on track. So that's sort of the key issue. And what you don't want is a very long list of things which are really hard to do or aren't necessarily really important or you know could overturn the government. Right? Coming up with that right list really involves really understanding what's going on in this country. And I think that brings us to some of the other points in the report, which were about you know, human resources, having the right people to work on these countries. And I actually, I mean, I really don't think this is, this is that difficult to solve. Um, you know, the challenge is, it, you know, if you really wanted to have people who, under, who cared about understanding the political economy of these countries, you know, there are people out there. <laughs> the fund just isn't hiring them. Uh, you know, I've come from, most recently from MIT and worked a lot with uh, Harvard grad students. You know, there are very top economics PhDs in top universities spending their time on the ground in DRC in fragile states. Those people are out there. You know, when I went to the fund and said this, they were like, oh, send them to us. I'm like, you know, they're there. You're just not hiring them. You're hiring the people who've written a macro paper. But that's not you know, that you're hiring people who've written a macro paper on Japan or the US. So you're not hiring these people. They're there. You could potentially think about recruiting them. Then in terms of incentives, you know, there was a lot of discussion, really interesting discussion in this report about, you know, are these people getting promoted? It, again, it's, you know, having worked in the fund, it's not that difficult to change the incentives in the system. You know, if... If the managing director chairs the board meeting of a country, it sends a signal, this is my most important country. You know, they chair the US board meeting. Well, you know, the IMF is, to be honest, not going to have any impact on what the US does. Now, what, what I always thought when I was inside the IMF was, you know, the interesting, exciting place to be is where you can actually change things. Note that, you know, that's where the IMS resources are at stake. Um, and that's what's, I mean, obviously the US is important for the world economy, but, you know, is the IMF really going to change it? So um, I don't think it's that hard to change some of these incentives um, if people really wake up to understanding that th these countries are critical um, to the economy and that the IMF has an important uh, role to play. And I have to say there were really, you know, there are people within the fund who get this, who are really committed, um, but it's about, you know, there's some bigger changes within the institution that have to take place. Can I just take a minute to, to mention a couple of the things that came out of Sierra Leone, because it is, um, you know, close to my heart. Um, and one is on infrastructure where, you know, I think there is a growing recognition and certainly within DFID about the importance of not just doing health and education, which are really important, but also things like infrastructure and e working on economic growth issues and economic development issues. Um, and that that's, you know, donors are increasingly getting into that space, and I, that, that's, I think that's a good thing. On quick wins, um, 
I completely agree about, I do think it's possible to get quick wins that work with the government institutions. It's really important when, as donors coming in that you're building the institutions of the country. But it's also important when you're trying to build um, uh, p political, you know, support locally for the political um, uh, solution that you get quick wins on the ground too. And so I, I, the first work I did in Sierra Leone was some rapid results work with decentralization where they were giving money, the World Bank was giving money to deliver quick wins through the newly set up government districts. So that's kind of quick wins and building government systems. And that's, you know, the best that you can do in these kind of situations. Thank you. Uh, Marcus, uh, I don't know if it's true, but uh, it's rumored that the Secretary General of the G7 Plus once called you the godfather of the New Deal, or maybe midwife. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in 2011, I think that many of us watching Fragile States thought, wow, this is actually something, this is real, this is serious, there's some great principles in here. Um, and looking back from 2018, um, it doesn't feel like we've made the progress that might have been promised through that. Um, and so maybe move us towards action a little bit. Is the problem that we don't know what the problem is or the problem is that we're not solving it? Uh, thank you. The Secretary General of the G7 Plus is a great diplomat. Um, but the truth is there were hundreds of people, thousands of people who put together the New Deal. It was the best from a whole set of institutions and countries who really thought about it. And then the Secretary General came himself and he said, this is what I want to do. He had t torn the New Deal through 33 development agencies of the UN. He said to them, you're all going to have to sign this within six weeks. They all said that's not possible. And there was stories of blood on the carpet on UN boardrooms about how much he drove that. And I think in 2011 there was a sense, we've now got it. We understand what we've got to do, we're now going to do it. And I think the tragedy is that we haven't delivered on it. And I think that's the real mystery. Why didn't we do it? And when you have an issues about people saying, we believe this is right, and you've heard Charles speak about, you know, the IMF believes what's right, but you don't do it, you're either in the area of delusion, to be nice, or in the area of hypocrisy if you want to be really sharp and nasty there is something very deeply wrong about what's not happening. Because some of it, as you say, is actually quite easy to do. I mean, it really isn't that difficult to hire people from the IMF who know about fragile states. Um, but we're not doing it. And I think that's what I want to do. I think one of the problems looking back was we, the New Deal was incomplete. It didn't have enough about growth. And I think it's really good to see there's a lot about growth that's happening. And the Fragility Commission is absolutely spot on to say, you know, we need to think more about that process. We need to bring in the development finance institutions. So I think that's, that's good and that's great. It never had the IMF involved, so it's really nice if the IMF were to sign up because I think if you want to have inclusive societies, how you share your resources in an efficient and effective way, what the IMF would call fiscal policy, is really, really important. So I think having them too. But I think the big problem, which is often the problem we talk about in aid, is the lack of ownership and the lack of political will. And I'm not talking here about the fragile states. I'm talking about the donors. The donors never really bought into the New Deal, to be frank. It got a bit forced upon them. Um, 
and they were a bit rather startled and surprised by the process. And they never really said, yes, this is what we are going to do. There was a lot of rhetoric, and there was a lot of rhetoric around, you know, we need to take more risks. But any objective assessment of what's happened in the last seven years is that collectively donors have taken less risk. Now, there's a reason for that. That's not to say, you know, it wasn't an irrational choice. It was to do with pressures around political pressures, domestic pressures at home. But the reality is that the UK took a lot of risks to help rebuild Sierra Leone and Rwanda and is not capable of taking those kind of risks again uh, in countries. So unless we understand why things didn't happen, we will be condemned to repeat our mistakes. Um, and that's why I'm both delighted by the Fragility Commission in coming out and saying, look, this is really important. Look, we need to prioritize inclusive politics over maybe health and education. You know, look, we need to use country systems. And Donald Kabaruka went on saying, yes, we need a new paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. But why haven't we got there before? So how might we actually change that? And I think there are two levels of change where we need to press. First of all, I think we need to change what we do in country. We need to get to a situation where every donor partner wakes up that morning in the country and says, how am I going to reduce the risk that this country falls back into conflict? And if I manage to do that by the end of the day, that is a success. And that's all I'm going to try and do. I'm not trying to do the 33 other things that my organization thinks is important that I should be doing in every single country. I'm just going to try and do that. I'm going to try and work with my colleagues to do that. Now, if we did that, well, then we might have a chance. But I think we all recognize we're a long, long way from getting to that point, both in terms of a sense of collective ownership of what the issues are, about what the priorities and the alignment to actually deliver on. So there is an enormous piece of work still to be done. And fragility assessments in the New Deal were an initial starter to do that. But we've really got to get to a point where we are really serious about saying inclusive politics, reducing the risk of conflict. So we need to change what we do in country. Then I think the two changes we need to do internationally, and one of which is funding. So South Sudan said, we need to rebuild the roads. South Sudan had no roads, so we want to rebuild the roads. And everyone thought that's a really good idea. And so the idea was to build the roads from here to where Catherine is. It would have still left South Sudan with fewer roads than any other country in sub-Saharan Africa. This was not a mad road building problem. This was a modest one. After 10 years, that is how many roads have been built in South Sudan. We just didn't have the mobile. Everyone said road building is actually rather expensive. So actually, we'd rather go do something else. Thank you very much. We want to you know, build a few health centers or do this. We're not going to build the roads. So there's some really deep sense of failure to prioritize at the collective level. When a country comes out of conflict, you need massive resources to get the hydropower switched on again. You need to get the roads built or whatever. But that's why the infrastructure in Sierra Leone has taken so long. There weren't the resources um, to mobilize at that particular point. And then the second issue, I think, is the whole issue about how we hold ourselves accountable. How do we actually measure whether we're making progress in reducing conflict? How do we actually measure that? We're not even measuring it, so how can we even begin to hold ourselves accountable for whether we're doing that or not? So I think it's great that we've reunited on we need to do this. It's a priority. I welcome the high political statements, but I think unless we engage with the reality of why we've not delivered that collectively in the past and why you find it difficult from small things to large things, I don't think we're going to make the progress we need to. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. Um, so what I'm going to do now is go across with a little speed round. I'm going to ask you a couple, each a couple of questions, maybe in part inspired by what your other panelists said or what you said, and then we'll go out to the audience. 
Charles, let me start with you because you are talking about a specific set of changes in a specific institution. Um, you've got uh, your own experience with the U.S. government. I work for the U.S. government. You've got some diffid folks over here. Who's the problem? What's going to prevent the change from happening? Is it the IMF bureaucracy? Is it the shareholders? Which ones? I know you're going to be reluctant to name names, but help us help you help us understand uh, who is it that is actually going to drive the sorts of changes that you are, are, have so eloquently and precisely articulated in your report. Again, I think it's, it's, it's a matter of prioritization. Is the international community really willing to say uh, not only are fragile states important and a global priority, but we are prepared to change the way we do business in key institutions like the IMF in order to help fragile states? The problem is that the IMF has multiple objectives. And when it makes changes to, for example, its lending facilities, it says, okay, well, if we do this, maybe this is going to help these fragile states. But on the other hand, it may water down the incentives for other countries to follow the right policies. So maybe we don't want to go quite so much in that direction. Rather, we want to go in this direction. Similarly, on the HR issues, okay, we'll put more resources on these countries, but where are we going to take the resources away from? And the board is very quite good at saying, yes, let's do more to help in this area, but it's much less good at saying where we should take the resources from. So it's, 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 a, it's a matter of, of, of delivering on these, on these aspirations by making hard choices. And that's, different, that's very difficult in an institution that works on consensus, because you'll have some champions who are pushing really hard uh, for the fragile state work to get more attention. But at the same time, there are going to be other shareholders who are going to, in public, they'll be supportive, but in practice, they're going to be resistant to the sort of institutional changes that are really needed in order to achieve this. How is this going to happen here? Is it a, is it a management of the institution that's going to pull along a reluctant board, or is it the board that's going to push along a reluctant institution? Where Where is the... Typically, the way the fund works is, is you have a... Uh, proactive management. Once management decides it wants to do something, then it works very hard to find ways to do it, but it has to bring the board with it, and it needs to be clever in building coalitions uh, to support the sort of change that it, that it wants to achieve. And that's difficult when you have a fairly diverse group of countries around the board. Uh, so there are certainly there is voices on the board that are strongly supportive of doing more for fragile states, but that's still a minority. Uh, so management is going to have to work pretty hard to build a viable coalition to develop enough support around the table in order to achieve these, these difficult changes. I mean, I mean Rachel says it's, it's not so difficult. Uh, I mean, the reality is that un underneath, the, 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 it, the, you know, the, the deep ways in which the fund works are are less easy. If you talk to the managing director and say, well, can you, can you do this? Can you, can you hire these 15 MIT experts in fragile states? She said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it, but I have to work through the system. She can't work by, by fiat. Um, so it, it, it takes time. But I, th I think if there is a, a genuine commitment to making that change happen, then the fund is a sort of place where it can be done. But it, there needs to be that genuine level of commitment. Rachel, you've got a little, you've got a weighted set of votes in your pocket. You may, yeah. have, you may have left them in the other room. Uh, is this something uh, that the, is it too soon to say, or is this something that the UK government is going to be willing to push the IMF on? Uh, we have 
been pushing very hard on this, um, actually. Uh, so, yeah, and I, the people who are responsible for, you know, deciding where our votes go are nodding in the audience. So, um, yeah, this is it. I mean, it's been a priority for our own spend and our own people. So, you know, DFID sends people to a bunch, you know, has good economists in countries where the IMF will not go, for example. Um, and it's a priority in terms of where we're putting our votes in the board and resources in the board. I, I mean, I think they're kind of getting a little bit sick of us saying, mm. <laughs> talking about, you know, the IFC, for example, just had a big um, increase and we've been important in pushing them to be spending a lot more of their money in, in fragile states, the, you know, CDC the same way. And we're kind of working through the institutions. Um, pushing fragile states in all of them, and, and the IMF is, is one of the ones where we um, have been pushing quite hard. Let me, let me ask you, um, from, the, from the DFID perspective, one of the things that obviously comes with investment in fragile states, as several of, of the panelists have said, is higher risk. Um, if you are going to invest more, push other institutions to invest more, we all hope that is going to have a big, positive, long-term critical outcome, but it's likely to have some glaring failures, too. Um, and we live in a climate here in, in the UK um, that has a challenging moment around these questions of accountability and risk and value for money. Um, so how do you think about sort of building support for the types of investments that need to be made to accomplish the objectives everybody's talking about, given that that's also going to have a higher risk profile? So, I mean, some of it is, um, we've been quite explicit. So in the IFC or the CDC, um, it's quite explicit in, in when we give them money and saying, you know, you get this money, but uh, we want you to put more money, more of it into fragile states. And we understand that that comes with a certain amount of risk. So there's, um, you know, they're allowed to make less return or have more failures in those fragile states. I mean, that's part of, of an explicit arrangement. Um, your thing, I think, talking a lot about uh, political risk, I think that that's not so much about working in these countries. That, that comes in in working through the government system. So I'm a big, um, I, I'm very much in favour of trying to work through government systems, um, and that comes with political risk. So if you push money through a government and you know some of it gets stolen and it's differed money, then then that is a big political risk because that does then threaten aid in general and 0.7. So so it's not working in these countries. I think the difficult trade-off for DFID is working. You know when do you work through government systems? Because yes, it's the right thing to build those systems. Now I think there's some interesting ways of doing it. For example, you know, like the Sierra Leone case that I talked about um, in terms of giving money through the districts. So, you know, sometimes when there's a ban on giving money through the central government, um, you can work with district governments who are still part of government, but, um, you know, and then you can choose the districts that are, um, you know, the, the better districts. And you can also get some political competition going, which I think is really healthy, um, in terms of saying, you know, we'll work with the best districts and the districts who, you know, can prove that they've got the best value for money. So, you know, I've just come back from Mozambique, um, where, you know, another um, fragile state where there's been conflict recently, 
but very critical to the development of that country is going to be having some political competition in a country that, you know, for 40 years has been under the same uh, same ruling party. But if they're moving to decentralization and the opposition is having some, some you know, will be in charge of some municipalities and some provinces, then you can start saying, well, let's get some competition going between the different parties as mm. to who's going to manage this. The, the, and that might be lower risk for us to put some money through those um, those states. So you know we're looking for places where we can manage the political risk for well, the mm. reputational risk. I mean that's the risk for us is reputational risk, and yet yeah, you know still build systems. Mm. David, it's a really good segue back to you. Uh, we talk about uh, local ownership and how critical local ownership is. Um, and it is at the very time when it is hard uh, to realize that local ownership because of capacity gaps. At the same time, Rachel talked about the C word, conditionality. Um, and so I think at the center of these discussions often comes the question of who decides? Who is, when you talk about local ownership, who is local? Is it the national figures? Is it subnational? If the national figures are in power, but maybe not the greatest set of actors, how do we realize this ideal of local ownership with the realities of what it means to work in fragile environments? The first thing to do is not to create a parallel institution for these programs. Now, the state would have <coughs> set up its own um, institutions. The thing to do is to work with these national institutions, build their capacity. They would feel more committed to it. They will feel a sense of ownership. But if that fails, there's also the, the, the local um, NGOs, the, the um, CSOs that we can use. But the people or the people we have appointed to lead should believe in the process. They should see themselves as part of it rather than um, these guys have come in to do something, we'll wait for them to finish, and then you go back to your um, capacity, and then there's zero capacity building, and we have not moved anywhere. You said something very important um, earlier in your opening remarks about uh, the donors and other actors all having each of their own agendas and favored sectors, and that's not to say they're bad things, whatever they are, um, but it is to say that it makes it incredibly hard to prioritize. You were in the position of having to try and get the donors to, to prioritize and follow what you believed was the right path. Any recommendations, because this is something that comes up in almost every single dis report or discussion around fragile states, what needs to happen in order to truly make it so that the international community is prioritizing around a local agenda? We need the... Um the international community to respect that we have our own agenda. We, at times, understand what is good for our people, right? Don't forget that there's a big agenda for the politicians to get back into power at the end of their tenure. So they want to be doing some things right, because at the end of the day, the people would vote them in. But they do not have, at times, the capacity they are not responsible for the fact that some of the people um, they appoint into 
political positions are not the right people, but they appeal to the public, so they have to deal with them. And when we have put these people in that position, we need to work together to see if we can build strong institutions around these people that would guide them in their service delivery. Right? So there must be continuous dialogue, continuous engagement with how we move forward. Catherine, you said something very interesting uh, at the start, which is your concern about whether the right people actually knew about the, the New Deal. And this is something that I've heard a number of times because I think that there's a perception that the, the development community embraced the New Deal, thought about it, have met about it, um, but that the political and security communities maybe weren't so involved and didn't really back it fully, and obviously they bring an enormous amount of power to build or detract from that progress. Um, so what would it look like to make sure that there's a much more kind of engaged and joined up approach, uh, and, and why didn't the New Deal get that right? I mean, I think there are a number of reasons for this, and um, one of which was, I think, initially at least, uh, there was a perception uh, that the New Deal um, had been sort of coloured as a donor agenda. Uh, very much, it's it's the, the the place of the International Dialogue Secretariat in the OECD and the evolution out of something that was an OECD initiative. Initially, kind of hampered some of the wider buy-in that uh, that would have that was at least on paper. Uh, the priority. So the peace building and state building goals, which is one pillar of the New Deal, is about security, justice, inclusive politics, and so on, which suggests the importance of building bridges with a wider diplomatic community. I mean, I, and security community. Um, I think there are new opportunities right now for that. I think the SDGs in particular create uh, a, a new uh, moment um, and also the Sustaining Peace Agenda at the UN uh, for starting to build bridges between what the New Deal described and some of the actors that will, there, there will need to be in. And also there are changes in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the cast of characters that sit around the OECD table, for example. So many, you'll have many ministries that have actually are not just uh, development agencies but also include uh, foreign affairs, and that has given, uh, that has started to um, create avenues for new bridges being built. It's not in all agencies, but it is happening with the pros and cons. Um, I would just, I wanted to say something as the others were speaking, particularly on risks, so I'll take this opportunity for also saying it. I mean, I think uh, there is an, there's a question about the narratives. And uh, it sounds a bit uh, uh, sort of qualitative in this space that is about hard facts. But narratives are really important in terms of changing mindsets. So why am I saying this? In Somalia, again, the example that I used is really, uh, it speaks volumes. Because there you had um, a country which had been in a situation of extreme crisis and conflict for 20 years and at one particular moment donors and and everybody else comes together around an agenda and what's been fascinating about Somalia has also been this working group and country and dialogue around what use of country systems might look like and they've done some very interesting work that was published I think uh, earlier this year uh, supported by a World Bank UN kind of aid coordination unit 
that looks really at this question of risk and really um, whether and and the contradictions in the narrative around political risk or because when third parties, for example, are used to provide services and so on, perhaps there are issues in terms of lower thresholds of tolerance around risk um, that are accepted or acceptable. Um, but when it comes to government, there seems to be a higher threshold in, um, uh, that, that, that sort of governs the way people think about risk. So when uh, resources are channeled through the government, the, the bars come up and the concerns about domestic uh, audiences and so on. But when NGOs are used, for example, to provide services, much less stringent conditions in terms of how they, they might be. Um, sorry, I see. <laughs> it, it was an, it's an issue that uh, colleagues uh, in, in, in the, the working group um, have, have well, raised. Okay. Okay. I'll shut up now. Sorry. I re okay. <laughs> but it, it, it is it, it is it is discussed. So I think with G7 Plus particularly um, are very keen to engage at a political level about uh, risk management, risk tolerance um, that were very much kind of bread and butter mm -hmm. issues for the New Deal at the outset. So I just thought I'd say that. Um, and just one final uh, issue around monitoring. Someone mentioned monitoring earlier and, and the fact that we don't know what uh, uh, making progress towards peace might look like or, you know, the, the, the wonderful uh, comment about, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if um, every uh, the senior defid uh, person in, in country would wake up and think, OK, what am I doing to... Um, and and, and, and it, it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge because the short time I've been sitting in this very uncomfortable seat of managing the International Dialogue Secretariat, it's done four years now, um, you see goalposts shifting all the time when uh, political commitment is difficult to um, sustain. So the way in which we monitor, and I'm speaking very freely here, I'm, I apologise to all those who might be offended, but you know, when, when political commitment is very difficult to sustain, so the way we begin to look at it, what, we, what are we really referring to when we talk about implementing the new... So slightly changes to make the notion of progress a bit more... You know, we can say more. We can say rosier things about what we've actually achieved, and I think this is a source of intense uh, frustration uh, for for many G7 plus countries that would like to see um, us getting back to the unfinished business that we initially set out. That's politically charged, very very difficult. But as we're thinking about how we implement these recommendations or the recommendations of the Fragility Commission report, um, we really need to think about: Can we agree? on how we measure these things that we, we are deemed to treasure. And just a last tiny, tiny point about narrative. In terms of trying to push those who might be reluctant to do the very simple things that uh, you suggested might need to be done in terms of human resources and so on, the scary narrative story could be quite useful. Because you started off, um, uh, um, Rachel, by saying um, this piece and fragility, the, abs the, 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 the consistent fragility problem is a global problem. It's our problem. It's my problem living in Paris. It's not our problem living in London. It, it's a global problem. So um, if it's difficult to get senior management to move on it, I think we could, be get, we could get a bit more creative um, in terms of presenting it as a global problem, not just the program of would-be development-minded types who would like to spend time in DRC or, and so on. Mm.
Sure. <laughs> Marcus, before we go out to the audience, um, just kind of, uh, you know, a segue from something that Catherine said earlier about the New Deal and 2.0 and the need for sort of momentum. Um, I mean, in many ways, 2011 seems like an eon ago, looking at just the last two years and the political tumult, the geopolitical changes that we've all been through. I was recently in a discussion in Washington. I won't say who said it because it was a closed door thing, but a senior political figure in the U.S. establishment on the Republican side said, you know, don't come to us with something from 2011 not made here. We're not going to, it's not going to happen, right? So, I mean, and that's, you know, that's not just a Washington problem. Everybody wants the, the new thing to kind of move forward and get political momentum. So, okay, so the New Deal was great, had some benefits, had some challenges, but what, what should we be doing now to kick off momentum with all of this energy that we've been talking about from the Secretary General on down to do something serious moving forward? I think there's two things we need to do. I think one, we as a community, it's important we inform whatever is new by the lessons we've learned from the past. So I think until we're a bit more honest about what's gone wrong in the past, we're not really going to be able to form something that's useful, that's new. Um, but the second thing, of course, yes, from a political viewpoint, you need to renew things. And, you know, having you know, a new deal that's seven years old just doesn't you know, make sense. Um, I think there may be something around the issue of results. Because I think one of the things we all are agreed on, we, you know, we need to um, have a much stronger drive on results and on impact. So that's why I think something around the monitoring and being much smarter and going back to the basics, saying, okay, let's talk in country about what for you would make a difference in making you feel more secure. And let's ground it in what people want, not what governments want, but what people want. And then how are we going to measure that? And then put money, serious money behind in monitoring that in a fairly high frequency way. Put money behind in a fairly high frequency way about, is the money actually getting down to the people? You know, if we give it to a district level, it's actually making it to the school. And I think there is actually potentially uh, an opportunity around that. And I think that might be a way of driving a lot of things, because it would go back to saying what's important for the country, which is then takes us back to the, to the core of where we should be starting, but also straps on how do we actually put into results. And I think if we invested more money in that, that might be a way forward. Great. So uh, we're going to go out for some questions uh, from the audience. And uh, if those of you online want to submit questions, again, I uh, encourage you to do so. Uh, I'll gather up uh, three questions. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and where you're from, and if you have a specific question for a specific person, that's great. Um, if not, uh, we'll figure out who's best to answer it. So uh, anyone out there? Gentleman in the back. Um, my name is Chris Williams with RTP. Um, listening to the mood of the, of the speakers, it sounds as though it's not going to get a lot better by, in terms of the amount of donors or the amount of money being offered. I think we understand that. There's a tightening of uh, money, uh, particularly in Europe. Um, so I would ask a question. Um, the way of actually getting money into the right hands would seem to me to encourage the remittances market to be more effective. We have a, a very large amount of money, much larger than the donations, um, that could be made better for remittances because they're not very effective at the moment. Um, going to some countries, I mean, Somalia mentioned, there is a way of getting money there, 
but it's extremely expensive. It's the, the only quote I could see of money going through is 16 to 18% out of it. Now, that's a lot of money um, where we have now technology, I think particularly of blockchain, where if that was operational through the central banks of the uh, destination countries, you can bring down the price to below the 3% SDG target. Um, I would love to see the IMF take that stage forward to actually work with central banks to see how they could do that. Okay, great. Thanks. Great question. Thank you. Others uh, here and then over on the side. Thanks. Um, I'm James Dean. I'm uh, with BBC Media Action, which is a charity of a BBC working mostly in fragile states. Can, can the panelists talk a bit more about actually what we mean by inclusive politics and where that debate has actually got to. An awful lot of a conversation is on building the capacity of a state, but the kind of has the debate on inclusive politics actually shifted and improved? Are we making real progress there? How important is it that we do? I saw in the LSE um, IGC report that, that elections is perhaps something that should be less of a focus and the political settlement more of a focus, but at the same time it talks an awful lot about focusing strongly on issues of shared identity in the context of fragmented societies. So have we got the, the balance right between the, the societal and the, and the state? Um, just some reflections on that would be very helpful. Great question. Thanks. Dirk. Dirk de Velde from the uh, Overseas Development Institute. Um, I'd like to come back to Marx's point, uh, and I'd like that nameplate to come here, um, in, in the sense that we want that road to be built, isn't it? Uh, and I think because we uh, listened to, uh, to to David Carew's point um, uh, around um, the importance of, uh, of infrastructure and helping countries to transform their economies and, uh, and that the donor community would like to need to be working with uh, institutions, with uh, the government to, to, to actually help countries transform and build infrastructure. And I think that, that's got to be answered, that question. How do you do that? And I think um, what we're learning, uh, and we've just also put out something from the Supporting Economic Transformation Program, that it's really important that, um, to be working uh, politically, working with institutions, and it's a labor-intensive process. Uh, so you need to have people on the ground working with government. And so um, one of the things that I would say is that it's really important to, to get more people from the, from the IMF in the countries. And uh, aren't we, can't we solve that coordination failure here that, that basically says, David said from the Sierra Leone perspective, we'd like more people to work with us uh, on economic development. Um, the, uh, the gentleman from the, from the IMF basically um, uh, criticizes the IMF for not having enough people uh, on the ground. Um, the the DFID chief economist is saying we'd, we, we're willing to, uh, to, um, uh, to think more on people on the ground. This is just a coordination failure we can solve, can't we? We have now, uh, from a developing country, uh, there's a donor's perspective and there's an IMF uh, uh, perspective. We, we can actually break that through. It needs leadership to actually just break that through and support countries where they, where, where they want support. Great. So three complex issues, remittances, much has been said and written. Very curious to hear what the panelists think. Um, inclusive politics, I mean, for my money, these are all political problems. If you're not dealing with that, you might as well go home. 
Um, and uh, the, the coordination fairs and particularly getting complex things done like, uh, and expensive things done like building roads. Um, who wants to jump in on any of these topics? I'll, I'll, I'll call on you if you don't want to. inclusive growth, <laughs> inclusive politics. Um, so I was actually here at, shortly after I arrived as chief economist at ADI on a conversation about, um, mainly about inclusive politics, actually. Um, and I was talking about elections, and um, UN UN was talking about um, uh, how you got inclusive politics in China in a kind of non elections um, and you know other people on the panel too but I think my take on that to summarize you know that whole hour and a half session we had on that is you know you have to start from where the country is um, and you know different countries have very different problems so I slightly worry you know that one of the things I wasn't so keen on in the fragility commission report is sort of the assumption that all conflict is ethnically based, which it wasn't in Sierra Leone, for example, um, and that, you know, therefore you shouldn't rush to elections. Well, there is then the question of, you know, when do you move to elections and when do you bring other voices in? So, um, as I say, I, I think it's all about understanding the situation on the ground and where there's, how do you get voice in that context and how do you, um, and how do you push that along in a way that is not going to make the fragility worse. Um, can I just do a rant on roads? Um, having done an impact evaluation of roads in Sierra Leone, um, and you know, everyone's you know a lot of people talk about it, electricity and spike. Spike as well. yeah, <laughs> but it's really different in countries that have low population density. So. Um, the cost, per, you know, which I assume is the case in South Sudan, where you're saying, you know, you said, well, people looked at it and said it wasn't cost effective. Well, you know, no, they said it was it too costly. It was too costly. Yeah, that was the okay. But but you, we really have to think about our models differently in countries where the people are very sparsely populated, because the cost per mile of road is really high, and often there's like five people per mile. And so it may or may not be worth doing. And, and you know, in our evaluation of roads in Sierra Leone, um, they kind of got washed away after two years. So just. Okay, good, good warning. Yep. <laughs> say something about remittances, whatever else you want to say, yeah, Charles. I'll say something about remittances. I mean, this is a technical issue. I'm not an expert. Certainly there's massive potential to use new technologies blockchain, uh, uh, digital currencies, many potential options are being developed that could vastly reduce the, the transactions costs, which should be hugely beneficial. The, there, is a, there is a countervailing concern, though, uh, that if you open up these channels without scrutiny, then they can also be used for other less positive purposes, like counter-terrorist financing or money laundering purposes. So there is that trade-off there, which means you, while it's a massive opportunity, you also need to make sure you, you don't uh, open up the channels for, for, for nefarious purposes. Um, on coordination on the ground, I, I think that's really important. 
I think the IMF in general does not fully appreciate the value of coordination with the donor community. Uh, in our report, we try to encourage the fund to be more, more open. Uh, coordination is not just about the fund telling others what they think, but also listening to others and hearing, hearing, uh, participating in a, in a, in a two-way dialogue. The fund business model uh, does not put a lot of boots on the ground. Uh, in some countries, there are no boots on the ground. There are like five countries, no boots at all. But even in countries where fund staff is allowed to go, uh, the fund will typically have maybe one represent, resident representative and maybe one or two resident advisors, and that's paltry compared to what DFID or the World Bank would, would put on the ground, and it's expensive, so it's, it's, it's partly a matter of resources, and I, I think the fund does need to go out and, and get more resources, uh, perhaps build up a fragile state uh, trust fund to finance more on-the-ground support for capacity development. Mm. Uh, so I, I think money is, is, is important, but the, also the fund needs to recognize that you need to coordinate as a, as a, as a, as a fundamental contribution to, to public good. Any other very quick responses? I want to go out one more round to the audience well, before we run I, out of time. I need to make a comment. Please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I want to take each topic, um, the remittance, inclusive politics, and the impact of world development in the country. <clears throat> Now, for, for the remittances, the way I see it work is that um, people in the diaspora having families in the country would remit, say, $100 every month to upkeep the family. Now, that empowers the family to be able to pay for certain things themselves, like health, at times education, and it reduces the pressure on government to fund those things or to pursue things like free education because now the people are empowered to deal with these things themselves. So remittance is very important, and we must create a way to um, make sure that it happens painlessly. I note your concern about um, terrorist funding, etc., but there are now international structures built to deal with that, and it will come under compliance. Now, um, I'll give you one quick example. The government now, the present government now, is thinking that the way it can fund um, education, free education in Sierra Leone going forward, is to make sure that the people in the diaspora fund that. How are they going to do it? If you want to vote in five years' time, you must demonstrate that you have paid some taxes towards the system. And if they charge you $200, per annum as your own contribution for tax, and you get a certificate to say that you have paid some taxes, then in five years' time, the infrastructure for voting would include some um, web-based voting system that you would participate. Now, if we take $200 for half a million people, we have a lot more than half a million people in the diaspora, but that's about $100 million per annum. You run that for five years. It, it may not solve all the education problem, but it goes a long way. Now, inclusive politics. Now, <clears throat> at times our politics fail because people have needs, people have views, but their views are not heard. And that was one of the things that caused Sierra Leone to get into war some 15, 20 years ago. Now, we must, have a, we must find a way to listen to them 
and we must have their views incorporated in the national growth agenda. The last point I want to make is the impact on roads. Because of poor connectivity between um, cities and towns, out of a population of 7 million people in Sierra Leone, we've got 6 million people in Freetown. So the infrastructure for Freetown, the roads, the water, the electricity, they've all collapsed because they cannot support that kind of population. Also, in 2010, 2009, when I was in the Ministry of Trade, I was trying to understand why we were importing so much food into the country. And I engaged with the farmers. The farms are in far-flung places, and people can grow food, but they cannot get it to the market. Creating roads, some form of roads, would just open up the whole economy. So the, the, the impact of the road is not just been measured by some mathematical internal rate of returns. There's a social return as well. You know, you can open up the country, you can um, get people to earn more, you can connect them from the farm to the market, etc. And it would contribute in its own way to the growth of the country. That, that's what we are talking about. Uh, thank you. I hope we're going to have an IRR uh, on roads Twitter battle after this ends, because I'm sure there's a lot out there on it. A quick word on inclusive policies. I have to, you know, the, 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 the New Deal's first uh, peace building and state building goal is inclusive politics, or as it was known then, legitimate politics. So what do we, what is it, I, it is still a con very contested uh, issue, which we have not uh, sufficiently addressed. However, over the last 10 years, we have become an international dialogue which also contains an important civil society network of organizations in country. What we're increasingly trying to do is catalyze uh, sustained conversations between the, the different constituencies of the dialogue, donors, government, and civil society in country. There are already structures that exist for that. In some places, we're trying to see how to re-inject or re you know, revive energy into those structures. It's got, it includes inclusion when, how much, uh, of who, are questions that can only be resolved locally. And listening to what's happening locally is critical to get a sense of this. Um, and even then, it's, very, it's still uh, a very challenging uh, area. And I don't think that the, develop, the international community or the donor community, at least within uh, the dialogue, has a consistent view on it. I think it's a you know, inclusive politics, but we're not all necessarily talking about the same things at the same time. Um, yeah. Can I go back out or do you have, all right, so uh, anybody with a burning question, we only have a couple minutes left, and I'm gonna come back to the panelists for a speed round of one minute each. Does anybody have a burning question? Gentleman in the back. Anybody else? Oh, go ahead, okay. yeah, please. Um, you talked a lot about political risk. Um, one of the things that I've been finding is that the heart of political risk is trust, and at the heart of trust are relationships. And Marcus, earlier you were talking about having a framework to try and monitor and understand impact. And perhaps if we look at uh, relationships and the impact that our, 
whether the donors are having on relationships within government or the way uh, governments are having uh, impact on relationships within their own countries, within their own communities, between government, central government and local government. And looking at through this relationship lens, you have a framework there to try and understand, for example, roads, how roads can improve relationships between different communities. And that can help improve cost effectiveness, for example. So my point is, do you know I think we should look through a relationship lens and looking at relationships is a good way to understand the impact that we're having on fragility. Thanks. And gentlemen in the back for the final question. So framing the issue around fragile states as a global security issue is certainly an effective way to acquire funding, especially from government donors, but I'm wondering how much is it actually hampering effective work to achieve sustainable change in f um, fragile states? Interesting. So questions on narrative relationships. I'm going to go down the line here. You each have about one minute. Um, and I'm going to throw one thing on top of it, which is that uh, when we're sitting here together in seven years' time, uh, what is the thing that we, uh, you would fear most we are not going to have fixed that we've all focused on today, uh, which to my mind means what's the thing that we really need to be putting on the top of the agenda right now? Catherine. Oh, gosh, I have to think while I'm speaking. Okay, let me say the thing I wanted to say. We have a, a, a wonderful blog um, entitled Dialogue is the X Factor of um, Trust Building in, in, in Somalia, and it's written by... Uh, Adil Garane, who's in the Ministry of Finance and was part of this group, and he's basically saying that the ability of donors and governments to continue to talk to each other about this thing uh, made the big difference, and it's a plea uh, for, for that continuing. Um, when you started asking your last question, I thought you were going to say, what is the single most thing we really need to do? And I was going to wave this around <laughs> and say the it's, it's called How to Scale Up Responsible Investment in Fragile Environments. And basically, the dialogue of many years ago, of two, two three years ago, uh, wanted to develop a new deal for the private sector, i.e. how to engage private actors in, in this discussion. And from that, we, 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 it was, it, we had a wonderful um, collaborative piece of work with uh, BNP Paribas Asset Management, the, the sustainable bit of that, to talk about how to get institutional investors interested in a new narrative around risk. We learned a lot um, that there is uh, energy in this space. Okay, so I'm coming to what might not happen. Uh, what's been difficult within a dialogue that is essentially um, led uh, or, or, or um, populated by people in either, not so much in the Ministry of Finance in the G7+, Plus, but uh, conflict advisors uh, who work on peace uh, and, and, and so on, um, is the difficulty, the, the, the difficulty of engaging with this kind of agenda. And so I wonder, unless the, an, a, a platform like the Dialogue opens itself up to other actors, private and um, you know, IMF colleagues here, um, we'll still be talking and writing nice documents, but we don't actually have enabled uh, others to come in and you start to perhaps think of how to use ODA differently to leverage that kind mm. of investment. Yeah. So. That's great. Good problem to crack. Charles? Um, I think the, the, the key risk is, is whether we can develop the commitment to actually moving forward with the solutions that we, I think all of, all of us on the panel broadly agree on. Um, 
whether the fund, for example, will continue to be balancing this against that, or whether it will say, okay, this is an international priority, we need to help these countries. This is one of the ways in which the fund can truly help uh, to contribute to, to, to the global public good. Therefore, we will take these actions. We will let worry a little, little bit less about the, the, the side effects and unintended consequences, and let's go direct uh, to be committed to making a difference in these countries. Great. David? Yeah. Um, okay. What would I want to see in the next seven years? Now, in parallel with managing fragility, uh, with all the wonderful um, recommendations in the report, I would like to see a framework for supporting um, the private sector, which would perhaps include um, political risk insurance, how to make it easy for them to access it, concessional loans credit guarantee schemes, there are things that would give assurance to people investing in difficult countries that um, they can, well, they should be able to get some of their money back if, any, if the country goes belly up, which we all hope that it would not. That's great. So I just want to say we've we kind of got a bit depressed in this panel about um, that we're not making any progress, and I think that is maybe a bit extreme. Um, so. There will still be fragile states with us in seven years. I mean, that's just, there will be poverty, there will be fragility. Um, so that's not the right bar to set ourselves. Um, we need to be taking this seriously. We need to be trying to build these, you know, innovative arrangements that are country, uh, you know, that make sense in the local country. Um, and I think we have got, we have had some examples in the last few years. Of, of the donor community trying to do that. Um, you know, you know, Somalia we've talked about, but also if you look at so the arrangements in Jordan to try and say, well, you know, let's come in to Jordan in a way that is quite different from the way the donor community has worked before, given that they have suddenly had this massive increase in refugees and that's putting pressure on the local domestic system. So we're not gonna only give money to refugees, we're gonna think about what's the impact of that on the rest of the state. So yes, we've got a lot to work to do. I think the IMF is one of the places where we have, but let's not get too depressed about that we haven't learned anything in the last few years about how to do this work. Marcus. Um, I think we may be missing pub public anger. I think we need to have the same mindset as we suddenly got onto debt. We all knew debt was a real problem, but until we actually worked out what we were going to do about it, and in particular in which countries we were prepared to do something different and change the rules that we were going to do it for these hippie countries, um, I think we're not going to get motion. And until you know, the Minister of Finance of Germany isn't being lobbied by people over debt, stroke the IMF involvement in fragile states, you know, we're not going to see some of this change. Because I think, I agree there are some things making progress, but I think we could do a lot better. And I think we'd do a lot better if we were all more honest about what we need to change within ourselves to do that. I don't see that happening without some sort of public anger about, I don't want to see so many children dying in Yemen. I don't want to see so many children dying in South Sudan. I don't want to see Ebola coming again in DRC. I just, this is, you know, get your act together. You know, stop, you know, messing around and break down the constraints on your institutions that you need to in order to change this. And I think if we could get that happening, then I think we might see something really different in seven years. Mm. Well, I think that the, that the roots of, of optimism are not only that there have been some remarkable successes. I mean, 
you know, you can look back at Sierra Leone, Liberia, Colombia, Bosnia, other places that we all remember all too recently were in the midst of conflict and have made great progress. Uh, but it doesn't undermine the fact that the challenges are enormous. Uh, the optimism that I take away is that every single one of you believes that progress is possible. So even if we're not always doing the best, we all believe that uh, collectively the institutions that we've been talking about and the countries that we've been talking about actually have the potential for positive momentum in the next couple of years. So please join me in thanking uh, our panelists for a terrific conversation. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>